You have to stick around for the sermon to get your gift. The more you look like you enjoy it, the better the gift. I'll meet you at a table out there, actually, and say hello to each one of you on your way out and hand you that. Looking forward to that. Um, Hey, you know, uh, a lot of our students uh, are going to camp this summer, mid-July. And most of you know we're in the process of searching for a, a new student pastor. We've hired a company that's doing that search for us. They're sorting through some final applicants uh, and hope to have a, a couple of them for us in the, in the next week or so. Um, but uh, we're still planning on uh, that camp trip, irrespective of what happens there. And we need some adult volunteers. So if you want to give up some time in the middle of your July and travel with 20, 25 students, uh, for moments that will be life-changing for them. We would love to uh, talk to you and see if that would work out. So uh, you or somebody you know might be able to be an adult chaperone for that camp that we would uh, love to have you. Um, did Greg and Ashley make it this morning? Are they here? I don't know if you know the Randolphs. Greg lost his youngest brother this week, and I wanted to ask you to pray for him. All right. It's kind of a weird way to start. Organizations, organizations, school systems, governments, businesses, associations, essentially are the harnessing of the power of things like infrastructure and banking or money, uh, support systems, technology, information, to expand, they, they utilize all those things to expand the innovations and the influence often of a single person. An organization is sort of an outward expression and power and multiplication of a single person's innovations and ideas. You think of people like Disney, Rockefeller, Zuckerberg, Lindell, the, the pillow guy. The best example ever is uh, Tony Stark. You know who Tony Stark is? Most people don't know who Tony Stark was until about 2008, although he's been around since 1963 when he showed up in Tales of Suspense comic as Iron Man. He got his own comic in 1968, and I read it religiously in the 80s and the 90s and loved it. He was part of an out-of-control company, organization. It was an extension of him, but it had gone bad and sold its soul and started making gargantuan profits in the sale on the black market uh, weapons around the world. So, Tony, <laughs> I used to have a really big podium. This just feels very constraining. <laughs> I just can't, can't have anywhere to lean. I've been demoted to this little thing. <clears throat> He, he, what he did was he, he created a new, smaller, but more powerful organization within that organization to be used for good. It, it was a nearly indestructible, high-tech, iron suit, completely operated and controlled from within by Tony. Oh, this was unusual for comic strips. It was a very real guy with very real problems, personal, social, romantic. It was a real dude. It was a very compelling comic. 
very real guy inside of this multiplication of himself, his intellect and his wealth to do good in the midst of this bigger organization that was doing bad. The society and the culture that we live in is essentially a powerful organization. In some ways, you might say out of control. Too often used for other than the most noble pursuits. And most, if not all of us, are trying to be powerful inside that system. In, in what we understand to be the right ways with the right objectives. As Christians, we obviously don't follow Tony Stark. But we do follow a man who, within a very powerful organization, maybe the most powerful at the time, the Roman Empire, Jesus promised power inside of that broken power system. He offered it to the little guy. I want to talk about that power a little bit today. It's an expansion of what we started talking about last week. This powerful thing called social networks and technology, which can be used for so much good, but has been absconded by some dark dynamics that we don't know a whole bunch about. We're talking about the cost of discipleship. The work required for human flourishing, our cooperation with God for the common good in the midst of these systems that oftentimes are broken. The cost of discipleship, the cost of, of, of being fully human, the cost of following God and becoming who God intends for us to come, become. Jesus said, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's what Mark records. And then Luke records this. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, Jesus, if you're going to follow me, count the cost. Including things like your family and even your own life. You could say it like this. To discover your most meaningful life, it will cost you the good things, the blessings even, like family and homes and money and reputation, that you've made Far too important. I want you to hear that again. It's going to cost us some of the things that God intended to give us as blessings that we have made far too important. They're good. But we've made them central. And it will cost us, in a manner of speaking, that we need to be disenchanted with the power of, offers of this world and to be enchanted by the offers and the life of God and his world. And to do that, to follow him, to truly flourish, takes work. It doesn't take our work to be affirmed and forgiven and assured of our place in heaven forever that, that was the work of Jesus. He's done it. We enjoy that and, 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 and gain that through faith. 
But Paul implores us in, in Ephesians that there is, in addition to the work that Jesus done, that is a free gift for us, that there is a work of sanctification, a work of becoming who God's intended us to become, that is good and it is for us to do. Last week, I led you right up to 12 practical ways to work toward human flourishing, particularly in light of the harmful dynamics associated oftentimes with the technologies and the social networks that we're involved in. And I just want to tell you, I'm not getting to those again today. I'm adapting them (laughs) and working on them. They will probably come next week, but that's a very thin promise, I can assure you. But um, there are some very practical things. We'll talk about some of them. I just won't get to that whole list again today. Partially because I wanted to spend the time to broaden the context from just technology. There's a, there's a few more components that are, that are worth mentioning that are part of a Western American organization that have evolved uh, in very powerful ways that make the work of flourishing even harder. At the very least, more complicated. And we need to talk about those. So if we don't aware of that and see those things within the context in which we live, sometimes we don't understand why the work is as hard as it is, and sometimes not even what the actual work is. And I want to launch into this by mentioning the very next thing that Mark records in his gospel after Jesus mentioned the cost of discipleship. At the beginning, the very beginning of Mark chapter 9, Jesus said this to a crowd of people that were following him. Actually, this was probably to a smaller crowd. And just to say, he says, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. It's fascinating to me that Jesus uses that word here, that he uses the word power. Because in part, they, they couldn't have possibly understood what he meant. We know from reading the gospels that they didn't understand what he meant, at least not initially. And the fact that he would use that word almost seems intentionally confusing. Why would he use it? Well, because of the same reason Jesus said everything that he said. It was true. It was absolutely true. It was just radically different. Radically different than what they'd imagined. I tell you, some who are standing right here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. It's just crazy they would use that. And he, he's been trying to break the paradigms that they have about power, and he just uses the word here. The Roman Empire, arguably, more than any other nation prior to it, had leveraged all of their intellect, all of their resources, as well as the intellect and the resources of the surrounding nations to bring about a dynasty of of military, political, and economic power unlike any that had been seen. And it was a suffocating regime, an oppressive, 
and inescapable regime for the people of God. This historically powerless from a world's perspective, people of God were as powerless as they'd ever been. But they have been given this idea that the kingdom of God, that their ancestors had perpetually fought and died for, it would seem in vain at times, would actually come to power in their generation before they, or at least some of them, tasted death. That was an invigorating thought. That the Messiah had come and that we are finally not going to be the 98-pound weakling that gets sand kicked on our face. We're going to be kicking some sand. But Jesus is referring to an entirely different power than that of the surrounding culture. And I think it's important for us to understand the power of our culture and how different it still is that the power of God manifests itself within that big organization in which we live. So the, the uh, cultural power dynamics in every generation are made up of essentially the same ingredients. I'm being almost uh, too superficial and generic here. But I think you'll recognize these and you'll probably understand what I'm talking about. Uh, and it's these ingredients that I think can give us some context for power culturally and uh, from a Christian perspective. And Jesus taught on all of these extensively. Worship. These are the culture-building ingredients of life. Worship, work, wealth, wisdom. And I just couldn't come up with a good W word for the last one. I I said words. Um, It could be uh, um, like weight. What, What I'm trying to get at is here is what goes out from us as a result of what we have through wisdom and work and wealth and and um, worship. There's something that, that happens as a result of it. There is something that we hope is powerful in our words or our weight or our influence. That's what I'm getting at here. These five things back in the day, like way back in the day, way, way back in the day, happened almost exclusively within the confines of your own property and your own family. All of that happened on your own little piece of land. And for the, for the Christian, for the godly, it was a sacred work, a sacred space, because it revolved around God. It was seen to have been given by God. There were eternal ramifications of your simple life, and the eternal was infused into it. So all the meaning and purpose you ever need, it barely went beyond the own bounds of of what you owned or the space where you lived. Let me break them down just a little bit for you. So worship, what is it? It's, again, this is very superficial. It's the practices of your life that honor and reflect your greatest priority and passion. Everybody is worshiping something or someone. Something is number one in your life, and most of your life revolves around that. It's our worship. Work. In very basic sense, is the practices of converting your energy and your ingenuity and your effort into the things you need. 
provision. Back in the day, you worked at crops and water wells and homes and clothes and animals and hygiene and basic education. Wealth. What's wealth? It's your accumulated capacity for economic utility or inclusion. Right? It's, it's what you have that enables you to be a part of the economy of your world. Back in the day, it was your land. That was it. In fact, when the founding fathers of America put the word happiness into the equation of what we are to, in search of in this world, it essentially meant land. It was all this land. You could move west and you could find and pursue happiness. Land, a space where you could call it your own worship Work, wealth, wisdom, and influence. Happiness. What happened, what has happened since back in the day, steroids <laughs> pumped up all these basic elements into what we experience as our culture today. And those steroids are the modern revolutions of industry and information and technology. I don't know, late 1300s, the first bank in Italy changed the idea of wealth from land into currency. And then whole systems have developed out of that since then. Banking systems, national banking systems, uh, equity uh, ownership in things and corporations and organizations. It is a massive system. In the end of the 1700s, the engine was invented, the steam engine, and then eventually a combustion engine, which moved work. It changed work from what you might call anatomical, like bodies and animals working together to work the land, to machines. And those machines got powerful and big and they had to push off of the land and be put into factories. And, and, and you could just see how the power of the engine just expanded our work and pushed it off of our property and took the people with it to be, continue to be engaged in that work. In the 1940s sometime, I don't know if you remember this guy, Claude Shannon, wrote this paper on the theory of information. This is a fascinating paper. This guy's way ahead of his time. And he basically showed how information could be digitized. Like information could be sent through electronic means and digitized. And, and he talked about how much could happen and, and to what extent it, would, it could happen which we call bandwidth today. He was literally talking about how information could be just dispersed digitally. And suddenly the world was no longer about wisdom. It was about information. And then I would maybe loosely tie what we talked about last week, the onset of not only social media, but the capability to connect virally 
what you think and what your ideas and what you imagine to be true or false or worth fighting for. And the social technological information platform of that technology suddenly gives everybody's voice, their words, this national capacity. It's not really international yet because we haven't quite solved language barrier. But that, to me, that would be the next frontier, right? As soon as language is somehow made uniform, and when that happens, now that whole influence of words is, is global. All that revolution multiplied the power of those cultural ingredients by hundreds and thousands and ten thousands of times is now uncontainable in sort of the traditional culture of land and family. And it fragmented those relationships and began to diversify them as well and pulling communities and families apart to pursue their work and wisdom or learning and information. You know, now you're, now you're traveling to uh, uh, universities beyond your normal reach to be in, in touch with all that information, they were research universities is what ended up happening. Colleges, universities used to be very relational. Then it became research information oriented, right? All this stuff started pulling society more apart, although it was accomplishing, as it were, so much more. All that power is enchanting and it's seductive and it draws us away from the most basic culture and sphere of most significant influence. And it whispers, it whispers to all of us that world changing is where your value rests. If you aren't making a difference in this world, then you don't have much value. So you better get involved with these systems, these power structures, these uh, ways to accomplish and succeed and maximize your life. Or you better get involved with a cause that matters to the world around you because that's where your value is. Get on board with this expansion, with this multiplication of power. You can just, we could talk for days about how this has worked itself out. Machines and roads and cities and interconnected pathways and trucks and supply lines and products and information technology that track massive amounts of inventories and payrolls and bank and credit and massive wealth. By default, most of us are either riding that exciting wave or caught up in it. What's diminished and what's lost might be obvious. It's the relational component within it. The character development that is designed to happen slowly and holistically within the context of family and the people of a relatively small community that are known to you. Mutually involved, mutual human flourishing. The world moves away because of all of these expansions from relational to transactional. My boys were the last generation that even fractionally needed their parents for information. If I wanted to know something when I was growing up, I asked my dad or my mom, depending on the subject matter. 
And if they didn't know, so I tell my boys, when I was a kid and we had a question and I didn't know it and my parents didn't know the answer, you know what? We never found out. Because our work and, our, and the next generation's work is off-site, I have no longer the natural opportunity to pass along wisdom and develop character in the guts of cultural life, of work and wealth and wisdom and words. It's transactional. Back in the day, if you walked into the, into the hardware store and you forgot your wallet, you would just take what you needed and the guy knew you and you would come back tomorrow and you would pay him. Can you imagine doing that at UDF? Do a little soda and pastry. Ah, I forgot my wallet. I'll come back tomorrow. What? What are you talking about? I don't even know you. I don't have to know you. I don't even want to know you. You just put your little card down there and exchange the money. I get what I want. You get what you want and you get on your way. It's transactional. Floss the relational. But the relational is important within the organization. We've all learned that. So what do we have? We have HR departments. We have training in team building. We've got ethics uh, standards that the HR enforces. All these relational things that should be learned by now. But they're not. So we're compensating trying to build relational stuff inside the organization. We have courses and ethics standards and employee-employer standards. And where those are lacking, the employees band together and create unions, and they say, you should care about us. You're not treating us like human beings. Start treating us like human beings. But it's not relational, it's transactional. So the transactions are personalized. Starbucks writes your name on a cup. That's relational. It's personal. Everything's personalized. This is personalized for you. you. Just think about how often that happens. It's personalized. It's personal. We're personal. This is personal. The company that's personal. Why is all that effort put into that? Because it ain't. Give you celebrities instead, close up, close up, even more than ever, into their lives. I bet some of you have wept or been depressed at the loss of someone you have never known. So the system gives us personalization and celebrities and uh, novels and pornography to give you some humanity, some kind of intimacy on all levels because it ain't there. The basic building block of meaning and purpose at the close relationship level is threatened by the cultural dynamics that have been Expanded beyond imagination. And there's, an, there's a very scary enchantment that 
whole system creates. And within it, we even lose the ability to understand that that dehumanization is at the root of so many of our societal ills and our personal illnesses. We need the power of what God does at the organic level of our life. Some of us can't even begin to imagine that meaning and purpose and wisdom and depth and value could happen within the context of my average, normal, broken life. It doesn't even seem like a possibility when in reality, in God's plan and in his world, it is where it most significantly and deeply does happen. Maybe only place that it happens. We tend to think that that sort of confinement would result in a smallness that could result in no real substantial meaning, purpose, or value, or identity. But the truth of the matter is, there was more of it back then. It was rich. It was deeply honoring to God. And it was largely generationally sound. Character and wisdom could be passed along with confidence. I'm willing to bet that most of you have had significant experiences of God outside in nature or somehow related to the physical created world. Colorful sunsets, majestic mountain scrapes, unexpected rainbows, powerful storms, and on and on. I'm also willing to bet that you've had experiences of meaning and accomplishment having successfully cultivated land Gardening, landscaping, planting, pruning, digging, building, fishing. I I, I cannot stop myself from standing and staring at my lawn after I groom it and carve it out. I just can't. I just look at it and I think, wow, God, it's beautiful. I'll bet the most life-changing, character-developing, life-learning, even God moments for you and others in your close circle were very organic, very small-scale, unexciting, basic life moments. If you think about it. It doesn't happen out there where the world says it happens. How many times do we have to learn this lesson of the people that have grasped the golden ring and then they stand back and say... It's, it, it doesn't provide. The con- critical component of human flourishing is interpersonal and it's communal. And of great importance is the communal and personal effort made for the flourishing of the most vulnerable within the system. The masses that don't have access or are exploited as the cost for others to attain their success. Most people in the world cannot access the power structures of culture that exist. And so one of the most significant parts of our human flourishing is to make sure that the most vulnerable flourish. And what they need, more than money, 
more than success, more than opportunity is you, is people. Someone to validate their personhood is what they need. I have yet to talk to a partner in the world with we, which we are supporting that would choose money over us. Never. Do you want me to send, I asked this, do you want to send you money or come over on a trip? Come on a trip. Please just come. Back to Jesus and his promise of power within a Roman system as explosively powerful as ours in relative terms. He returns to this word again. Just before he leaves, he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You, my people, are going to be powerful. And what did that power look like? What did that power end up being in the first century church within the context of the power structures around? They lived within the power structures that were there. They didn't leave it. They lived within it. They were housed within it. They, they, they've operated within the economy of it. They lived within its laws. But they understood that the real power was in reaching down rather than climbing up. All of the power that they had was deployed in relative obscurity. But had, let me say it this way, but what it led to was them giving their very lives to validate the king of that power, Jesus, and to pass it on to the next. It happened in relative obscurity. The world at large did not see it as success. They saw it as foolish. Many of them died with nothing, or they died for the purpose of defending that very way of power and life. They served rather than seeking to be served. They gave rather than seeking to receive. They offered grace rather than getting even. They were loving to those who sought to overpower them. They were peaceful in the midst of anxiety. They exercised faith rather than fear. They worked because it was worshipful rather than a necessary evil. They pursued wisdom rather than intellect. They answered to a standard of holiness rather than a standard of comparison. They lived their lives for an audience of one rather than many. And most of all, like I mentioned, Dignity and worth and inclusion was offered to the least and the most vulnerable in their society. So let me conclude. 
There is a price of pursuing true humanity, a cost to discipleship, a work that's required for human flourishing. And the recent and current advancements of our culture that have yet to be rightly motivated and regulated are often working in the opposite direction. And they oftentimes capture the church. Do you know what I mean by that? Like the, the church gets caught up in those power structures too and, instead of doing what it should do. But there is, in the midst of all that, a heaven-sent, earth-deployed, organic-level, small-scale, yet powerful thing for us in the person of Christ and in the dwelling of his spirit and it is available to everybody by faith. It's a power that revolutionizes the base, basic building blocks of life, family and friends and worship and work and wealth and wisdom, of which the impact of those things in your localized space is eternally significant, even though it usually reaches no further than your own plot of land and small circle of family and friends. Look at the impact of the powerful life of Jesus that barely made it beyond a few dozen friends and one small city. My cousin's son, who's the same age as my boys, will succumb to a five-year battle with cancer this week. But in those past five years, because what God put in him changed everyone in his world. His life, his attitude, his continuing to swim with one leg, his few words, his smile, his kindness, and his lack of preoccupation with self profoundly, powerfully changed the character and trajectory of his entire family, his extended family, his school, and his small northwest Ohio town for generations. Greg and Ashley are facing the loss of their uh, Greg's youngest son, and they will be in spaces that are deeply painful in which God will, can and will do powerful things that will change their lives. What might God do with you and us if we give up the life pursuits that promise ease and comfort and success and fame and fortune and instead pour ourselves into one another within our midst to see the meaning and simple consistent gatherings of worship and the worship of uh, that is our basic work and the power of any and every generosity out of whatever you have and the eternal impact of the encouragement and wisdom that comes out of your mouth that can be passed along for generations knowing all the, all the time, knowing full well through it all, even in these simple spaces, that the power comes not from ourselves. It comes from God himself for whom we are largely, if not mostly, simply his servants and his witness. Jesus gave us No real long-term, big world impact initiatives. He said, live and speak in a way that points to me. 
Be my witnesses. And help other people follow me. That's it. That's it. But it's the most powerful thing you can do with your life. Arguably, everything else in this organizational world system that we live in is pulling you away from that. Don't let it. We got to work together on that. You, church, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Columbus and the suburbs and Ohio and even to the ends of the earth because of how we trust God and live our lives. So let me ask you to stand. We're going to read from Psalm 86 together to finish things out today. Let me say thank you to those of you that joined us online. Yes, stand together. Uh, For those of you who joined us on, thank you for being there. Graduates, I will meet you outside by the uh, door there and we'll see what we've got for you. Let's uh, read this uh, Psalm 86, 1, 4 together as our prayer. Uh, Together, here we go. Hear me, Lord, and answer me. For I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. Amen. See you soon.